If you'd asked me six months ago what an NFT was, I'd have thought you were talking about a new marketing metric abbreviation to lump in with the KPIs and CPMs. But since then, we've been making it our business to educate ourselves on the world of non-fungible tokens and digital collectibles of late, as I'm sure many of you have been as well. Now, if you run in those circles, no doubt you've heard of our next guest, Zoe Scaman, who is the founder of Bodacious and who also does lots of work with some of the world's biggest brands, including Nike, Burger King, the NBA and loads more, particularly in the NFT space. Her understanding of the metaverse and Web3 is second to none, and I have no doubt you'll come away from this, having learned a lot and had plenty of misconceptions cleared up. Yeah, second to none is probably the words I'd use as well, Eve. She is very, very impressive. and My head right now is buzzing with ideas about it's just things you've never even thought of doing are possible in this new world. So yeah, I mean, have a listen. And I would love to see brands go away from this chat and, and start exploring the space. Coming up, we've got some really, really interesting topics for you that we cover, uh, right from where NFTs began and who's winning in the space right now how eco brands can and should be involved with crypto and NFTs, and also why we're just waiting for the plumbing to be fixed for the metaverse to really take off. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you on um, and speak about a topic that's been on all of our minds recently and hopefully uh, give it a bit of clarity. So as our listeners know, every single week we'll ask our overarching question first. And this week that is, are NFTs an asset to brands or the next passing fad? I don't think that they are a passing fad. I think that they are going to be a kind of fundamental infrastructure operating system that sits beneath you know, the internet as we know it. I think some of the use cases that are happening right now are going to be quite faddy. And we're already seeing that, you know, 10,000 profile pictures, you know, uh, pump and dumps, hypes, scams, all of that kind of stuff. I think, it, you know, it's, it's very natural when there is ever any kind of new technology, new software, new platforms, whatever, for people to try and figure out very, very quickly, how can I make a shitload of cash doing it, you know, and what we're seeing from an NFT perspective at the moment is a mixture of crypto bros, you know, who have been uh, hyper manic about the space for a really long time. We're seeing a huge influx of investor types. And, you know, that's potentially bringing out the worst use cases of this. But I think that as we start to move forward, and as that kind of hype bubble, not necessarily pops, but kind of shrivels a little bit, what we're going to see instead is the really interesting use cases and developments that are going to come from this. And I actually think we're going to stop using the word NFT, you know, we're just going to call it like, you know, an avatar outfit, or we're going to call it an access mm. card, you know, or we're going to call it a virtual collectible or something along those lines. But I do think yeah. the infrastructure point is the bit that we should be focusing on. Yeah, that's it. Because there are so many different kinds of NFTs. And I think, I mean, before we delve really deep into their use cases and things like that, for the benefit of our listeners, let's define NFTs. What would you say an NFT is at its most basic function? It's a contract. That's all it is. So it's basically, it's a smart contract, which essentially is a couple of lines of code built into a blockchain that de basically decides what this contract is going to do. So, mm. you know, a lot of people initially, because of what we saw with NFTs, they thought an NFT was a thing. So they thought yeah. it was a GIF or they thought it was a piece of art or they thought it was a static image or something along those lines. But an NFT can be anything, really. It's just basically about constructing a software-based contract. And we say what that contract is supposed to be for. So it could be, this is going to point to a JPEG that is now yours. This is going to point to a royalty share in a song. Um, this is going to give you access to a party, you know, if you hold it up and kind of swipe it on the door. This is going to give you an access pass to go and meet an NBA player, you know, or something along those lines. So it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter, but it's anything that the smart contract says it is, that is yeah. what it is. And, you know, at this most basic form, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And all that means is it's a unique thing. But what that thing is, is totally open to what you decide to build into the, the smart contract. Yeah, because even now, I think a lot of people think that it's just a JPEG yeah. <laughs> that you can own, but that piece of code can actually sit behind anything digital. Yeah, I mean, it can sit behind digital real estate. It can sit behind a real thing. You know, a lot of people who are in the luxury business, for example, like LVMH, they're now using NFTs to essentially uh, authenticate a Birkin handbag or a Vuitton handbag or something along those lines. Because at the moment, you know, if you buy one of those, you have your, you know, your details put into a registry and you have your little kind of certification card, but you could lose that. 
you know, it could get stolen or something along those lines. But if you've actually kind of got it burned into the blockchain as a smart contract and it's attached to a real world thing, that gives you a level of kind of provenance, trackability, authenticity that you wouldn't necessarily get elsewhere. So again, I mean, that is all an NFT is. It's like it's a unique piece of code that says that a smart contract is a thing. But what that thing is, is, you know, open to myriad interpretations. Yeah, I think you broke it down really nicely there, Zoe. And I think there are actually bits of that, you know, naturally because we're in the circles, we hear about the metaverse, NFTs, digital assets pretty much every day now. I think to to some of my other friends who, maybe some builders, for example, who've heard of the acronym NFT, but they don't necessarily work in these circles. So what you were saying there about burning into the blockchain, et cetera, they don't actually know how or why this has cropped up all of a sudden. Yeah. So, so why is the ownership of digital assets such a talking point at the moment? Why now? I think it's just, it's the next evolution of where the internet's going. So the way that I tend to describe it is kind of web one, web two, web three as the different iterations Mm -hmm. that we're going through. So web one was all about information links. So that's when Google came along. So essentially what it was, was, you know, we need to make the internet discoverable. We need to be able to link to different bits of information. So if I want to book a flight, if I want to see what the news headlines are saying today, um, if I want to find out, you know, what's going on in East Africa or something like that, I need to be able to type in my query and then find an information link that's going to take me to the information that I require. So that is essentially what, you know, search engines were and tracking and all that Mm. kind of stuff where we started sort of linking different web pages to one another. And then the next iteration was web two, which was social links. So that actually allowed us to connect to one another. So that's your Facebooks, your MySpaces, you know, Friendster, if you kind of remember all the way back then, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of stuff. So then we start to connect to each other and we've all got individual feeds and we can catch up with what's going on. And the next iteration is economic links. And we haven't had that previously. So for the last decade, probably, you know, arguably more, what we've almost been teaching ourselves is that content creation on the internet should be free. So we are saying that, you know, if there is a meme, it's free. If there's a song, it's free. If there's a piece of artwork, it's free. And everything can kind of move fluidly around the internet. And while that's kind of nice to a certain extent, it's also not necessarily true. So nothing is free necessarily. So every single time we post a, an update to Instagram, for example, be it, you know, a story, be it, you know, a grid content or something like that, we are still having our content monetized because the big mm-hmm. platform is the one making the money out of us. We're just not seeing any of that monetization. So, you know, when we're looking at the kind of economic links, what we're seeing now with Web3 is actually the filtering down of those economic links to us. So we can actually start to realize some of the value that we create for these different platforms. And so a lot of people have kind of said, you know, about Web3, I don't want everything I have to be transactional in nature. I don't want everything to be financialized. But everything is already financialized. It's just who is actually getting the value out of that. And so every single time, as I said, we put a post on Instagram, we are attracting engagement. And when we attract engagement, we are attracting eyeballs. And then the big platforms sell those eyeballs to advertisers. So we're just churning out all of this stuff for free. And they're realizing all of the value. And if you're lucky, you know, as a creator, you might build a strong following. You might be able to then do a bit of jazz hands for some brands. Some brands might sponsor you. And that's pretty much, you know, all of the value that you're going to realize. But at the same time, you still don't own that audience. So if you've got a million followers on Instagram and you decide you want to port them to another platform, you can't. You've got no Mm. way of downloading the contact details of all of those people. If Instagram changed the algorithm, you're fucked. You know, you can't do anything. You've got no recourse whatsoever. So again, the system is rigged. So everything is already financialized. Everything is already a transaction. And we've been taught to think that it's free because they don't want us to know that actually we're creating a huge amount of value, which arguably we should be getting benefit from. That's the next iteration. So that's the Web3, which is economic links, which is filtering down value creation and distributing it much more fairly. Yeah, I was just going to say, we've definitely seen that happen before in terms of platforms just absolutely pulling the rug out from Mm. under creators. And the idea of being able to move your community or audience across platforms is actually a really intriguing one. Uh, And I'd be keen to go into that a bit more later. But I think while we're on the subject of Web3, it's another like very common misconception that I've seen floating around. Can we explain the difference between Web3 and the metaverse? Yes. Uh, So the metaverse doesn't exist yet. It is a concept that originally came from Neil Stevenson's book, Snow Crash. Um, And it's this idea of us essentially being able to move fluidly between the real world and a kind of virtual incarnation of it. And those worlds have, you know, shared economies or there might be an economy that lives in the virtual world. And essentially it's the kind of point in time 
where we have that fluidity and where we can work and live and have relationships and play in the virtual world. And that lives almost on top of as a mirror world of our reality. So it's a fictional concept, you know, that was born out of this book. And this particular book, I don't know if anyone's, you know, read it. It is it's very dystopian and it's very, say, very dark. It paints the yeah. metaverse in a very bad, negative light. And in the end, so capitalism ruins the whole thing. And the fact that Mark Zuckerberg's decided to name his company Meta after, you know, the connotations of that isn't quite negative was surprising. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, it's a fictional concept. And, you know, it comes from Neil Stevenson's mind and it came from that particular story. It's a really good shorthand when it comes to us trying to figure out, you know, what this future concept may look like. But I think because it's so dystopian and because it's so dark, people are taking threads of that and thinking that whatever metaverse we end up with is also going to be dystopian and dark. But technology is what you make of it. You know, it's kind of how you use it and all that kind of stuff. So I think we just need to kind of consider that. But essentially, you know, it is a future concept state that doesn't exist that we're potentially moving towards. And in order to get to the metaverse, we're going to have to have loads of hurdles already overcome. So interoperability between different platforms, everybody building on similar protocols. So you've got common, you know, coding language, for example, massive legal barriers we're going to have to get over as well. You know, so if you've got interoperability in the truest sense of the word, I could arguably take my banana skin avatar um, from Fortnite and chuck it into Call of Duty and suddenly you've got a banana running around with a machine gun. You know, that might be a bit of an issue when it comes to IP and legality and all that kind of stuff. That's an extreme you know, version of it. But I think a lot of people don't understand that the regulatory infrastructure, legal hurdles are going to be the biggest things that are going to stop us getting to that point. And it may well be that we end up with a metaverse concept that's part centralized and part decentralized, which I think is arguably what's going to happen. Web3 is almost the infrastructure plumbing layer that sits underneath all of that. So it's the economic links, you know, as I mentioned. So it's things like blockchain, it's things like tokenization, NFTs. And what that's essentially allowing us to do is to build a true economy within the virtual world because we have scarcity and ownership of virtual and digital assets for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And we cannot really get to a metaverse state unless we have a way of actually introducing scarcity and assets and ownership and economic piece, bits and pieces into the internet. Most people have heard of collectibles, and I know you talked about a couple of different examples before, you know, with the Birkin bag, et cetera. What different types of NFTs are there? You know, I've, I've heard God. recently some, <laughs> some really interesting examples the other week about music artists, fashion. You know, if you're in early on a music artist and they then become the next Beyonce, that could be, you know, massive. So what are the, what are the various use case studies here? I mean, arguably there's about 250 uh, mm. at least, if not more. So I don't know well, if I'm going to be able to give you, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to give you a shopping list. Um, but there's, there's so many, you know, uh, as I said, it goes back to whatever you want the contract to be. So arguably the limit is your imagination and your coding ability. Um, but, you know, you can have NFTs which age over time. So say, for example, you know, when we're thinking about a piece of art, for example, there might be or a piece of furniture, there might actually be some value in the fact that it ages or it gets to an antique state or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we need actually new virtual content that ages and evolves as it goes. That could be really interesting. You know, that's a kind of NFT use case as well. So actually, does the value increase or does it decrease? Or, you know, how does that aging and evolving work? Mm -hmm. You know, do we have NFTs that can kind of grow as narratives over time? So there is a particular uh, blogger called Mario Gabriel, and he's doing an experiment at the moment with philosophical foxes. And essentially, he's saying, you know, you buy these kind of profile pictures of these foxes, but these foxes also have narratives that the owners can give them. So in a very similar vein to, you know, when you were a kid and you used to write those stories where you'd write a line, fold it down, pass it to the next person, they'd write a line, fold it down, and then you'd see what you ended up with. You know, these are NFTs that accumulate narrative and personality and character owner to owner as they grow, which is really interesting. Then you've also got evolving NFTs that are actually tied to real world events. So there's an NBA player called Lamelo Ball, and he's released an NFT collection, um, which are tiered. And the NFTs actually change in value depending on his actual performance in real time on the court. Uh, when they unlock different things or they can decrease in value or increase in value or they can unlock different rewards if he gets a certain score or something like that as well. Mm. So, you know, that kind of stuff is is possible. Then you've got provenance. So, you know, I mentioned handbags, but provenance could also be for food. So, for example, if we're looking at starting to get, you know, more quality back into the meat market, for example, we can actually have blockchain tracking of where that meat has kind of come from, where it's been butchered, where it's then gone afterwards, you know, the process that it's gone through, what the manufacturers were doing with it, where it's been distributed. So it allows that kind of transparent 
chain of events to then be kind of tracked by us as well. So that can be, you know, NFT related. Obviously, you've got ownership of, of digital assets and digital goods, you know, like skins and that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing with that is it allows you to then resell that skin if you wanted to. Whereas at the moment, obviously, in video games, you buy them and you can't really do anything with them apart from wear them on your avatar. And, and that's kind of it. And you've got, you know, collaborative NFTs. So, you know, what if you actually to bring people together and, you know, you almost have each of you have a different piece of the puzzle and you can only unlock the full puzzle when you all come together as a community and the NFTs merge and maybe they then become something else. So there's just, there's so many use cases. And I think people really need to expand their minds on, you know, on what that looks like. I think, you know, mm. fundraising is really interesting. So I'm exploring an idea at the moment um, where, you know, can we actually NFT square meters of, you know, sports pitches and use that as a new form of ownership and also fundraising to make sure that we've got better facilities and utilities, you know, and that kind of stuff as well. And that ownership of the square footage of the pitch could also give you ticket rights. It could actually mean that your investment in that pitch could go up over time. You know, it could unlock different meets and greets with different members of the team over time as well. So there's just, there's so much potential. Um, and I think, you know, when people kind of scoff at NFTs, they're scoffing at, you know, essentially what the future economy could be. And like so mm. many use cases, how can you walk away from that? How can you mock that when you truly understand the breadth of this? I, I, that's kind of beyond me at the moment, but we'll see. That sports example there that you gave, I think that is a bit of an eye-opener. Not necessarily for me because I have been looking in this realm, but I think for a lot of people, like we said before, you know, the, the scene is just JPEGs. But then we've seen we've seen quite a lot of bad examples in sport. Granted, there are good ones like the Lamella Ball one. Um, but I think we've seen, you know, like um, Tyson Fury, for example, uh, when he fought in his last fight. Um, he just released uh, literally an, a graphic of him uh, boxing with a belt around his waist. It didn't give you access to anything. There was no meet or greet access. It was quite literally perched in that to say you've, you were part of the moment. So at the minute, I don't think the the rewards are quite there, what they can be. But the football example to me was, like I say, a bit of an eye-opener because then if you start getting into actual real rewards, physical rewards, that's when I start to see this world really taking off. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment that, you know, the use cases are, especially with tokens, that's a completely different thing. So obviously, you know, what you're talking about there is not NFTs, you're talking yeah. about fungible tokens. So it's almost like a kind of in-game economy or a team economy. And I think the difficulty at the moment is people are kind of going, well, this is great because it's a loyalty scheme plus a stock market, which is arguably very, very interesting. But what they're not thinking about at the moment is actually economics. And so a lot of teams and people um, and also, you know, stars in other realms as well who are kind of setting up these tokens are doing it without really understanding what economics they're trying to build and what they're trying to drive. And which is why, you know, I think I said a couple of weeks ago on Twitter that one of the biggest jobs that's going to start to rise in the next couple of years is going to be virtual economists because people need to understand inflation. They need to understand, you know, value distribution. They need to understand how you earn, how you sell, how you trade. They need to understand, you know, what is actually the kind of monetary idea or value of these different things, because you can't just start a token, chuck it into a community and kind of go, good luck, guys. You know, hopefully we're going to earn some money from this. It needs yeah. to be carefully managed. You know, we need economists. We need people who understand all these different systems and how they overlap. So it can't be just started by someone who only understands loyalty or who mm. only understands brand, because there are really nuanced and quite complex dynamics at play here. And I think that a lot of people who have started this stuff haven't thought that through, which is why you're seeing really shitty, trivial examples of like, vote for the music in the tour bus and vote for your version of the man of the match. It's just like, well, this is crap. You know, why do I want to do that? I want real meaty governance decision making. Or, you know, if I can't have that, I still want to understand that the meaty governance decision making is happening. And my investment in the team via these tokens is increasing because they trust the economics of where this is going. I think I can see the value very clearly for creators and even like football clubs and individual athletes and individual people where that community is really sort of you know a given and some of those examples you gave earlier I think just go to show that it does come down to a bit of a lack of understanding and a lack of imagination and um, that what we're seeing with brands is often you know they're defaulting to just virtual versions of their products or you know here's an NFT of our you know historic ad because they're probably just thinking about revenue right um, and you know jumping on the hype. But I guess from your side of things, Zoe, how would you define 
NFTs actual value proposition um, for brands specifically? You know, is it trying to get into that community building or maybe because they don't have often the same link with their audience? Um, you know, is it trying to tie it to product sales like we've seen with Balenciaga and Gucci? Or is it partnerships um, with other brands like Gucci's been doing with Roblox? Where do you think is sort of the best area for brands? All of the above. I think it's a case by case basis. I don't think there is one neat NFT proposition that all brands can jump on. I think it's mm-hmm. totally to do with their DNA, what they stand for, you know, what they're trying to get out of this. You know, for some brands like, you know, your Adidas's, your Nike's, that kind of stuff, there's going to be a huge amount of value initially in releasing, yeah. you know, avatar clothing lines. You know, Zara, for example, have done a partnership with a South Korean brand and, you know, they're going to be releasing a actual IRL collection, but you can also then buy the avatar version of that collection as well. And that's just basically thinking about this new model that's going to come in the fashion world of one for me, one for my avatar. You know, so you can kind of match and sort of build yourself in that capacity. That's one use case. You could also find that, you know, the Nikes of the world could do really, really well in terms of integrating, you know, NFTs into their sneakers app. So for example, that could actually give you exclusive access to certain drops, for example. Or it could be that, you know, they want to start fractionalizing sneakers in different ways if you can't necessarily afford a vintage LeBron, you know, whatever it is or something along those lines. So actually you can fractionalize it and an NFT might be, you know, a share in that particular sneaker and it becomes an asset rather than a fashion item. You know, there's so many different ways to think about it. There's also product development. So, you know, Glossier, for example, has been one of the forefronts of sort of community feedback loops since they first started. So uh, they've got a closed uh, Slack group and um, they ask for feedback. So they kind of go like, right, you guys love our products. What packaging do you want? What scent do you want? What about the consistency of this body wash? What about the colors of these lip glosses? And those people are hugely valuable because they are uber fans who are super plugged into the wider audience of Glossier and the customer base because they're also like modern day Avon ladies. You know, they sell and they actually get kickback as kind of advocates for it as well. And so they are making products that they know are going to be really successful. But right now, those people in the Slack community do not get any equity share or kickback for their contributions. What if they did? You know, what if that was kind of NFT'd and actually you started to get, you know, a small percentage share in a product that you helped to co-create from a brand, even if the total revenue kickback of that is 5% of the overall sales or even less than that, for example. So again, it's just thinking about this. There's so many different use cases. You know, I'm working with a games company at the moment across three different game titles at the moment. And each of the different ideas for how we can use Web3 and NFTs is fundamentally different depending on what they're up to. Um, Because as I mentioned previously, crypto shouldn't be or NFTs shouldn't be front and center. It's not about suddenly shoving crypto and NFTs in front of every single brand and business proposition. It's about, again, thinking about it as kind of the plumbing and the infrastructure. So we're looking at, you know, how can we augment and accelerate existing player behaviors depending on what they're up to? So, you know, if, for example, one particular title is all about Mm. your high score and it's all about how many kills you've got on your leaderboard, how do we use NFTs to then help you with status and ranking and kind of reward mechanisms for that. If there is another one where you're thinking about actually the player behavior is all about creativity and self-expression and, you know, sharing your ideas, how do we use NFTs and crypto to accelerate and augment that, you know, and so on and so on. So it is a kind of use case by use case perspective. And I think a lot of brands just want the answer going, what do we do with NFTs? And I always go back and kind of go, well, what are you doing as a brand? How are you building community? What do your customers currently do? How are they interacting with you in different channels? And then potentially, how could we use NFTs to almost be complementary to that, if that's the right way to do it? you know, or crypto to be complementary to that. So you are coming from the the infrastructure stage and saying, how can we add more value? How can we add better experiences as opposed to just doing NFTs, you know, for the sake of them? And I think in many ways, you probably shouldn't be doing them unless you've got your shit together on the community aspects and the co-creation aspects. So, you know, I, I published a deck on fandom back in June and the fandom formula was community times autonomy, which is around kind of co-creation and co-navigation and then equity. And the more I've been thinking about it, especially with brands, the more I'm actually seeing it as a linear path. So start with kind of, you know, how are you building community? What type of community? Why should they give a shit? Why would they want to be a part of it? Then how are you opening up into kind of autonomy, co-creation, co-navigation, feedback loops? And then and only then, how are you starting to introduce an equity layer that augments the previous stuff that you've been looking at, as opposed to just jumping in for the sake of it and just building, Mm. you know, shit collectibles of a McDonald's McRib sandwich, for example. 
<laughs> don't get me started on the McRib. That's like my favorite crap example at the minute. But no, I think that's really interesting, Zoe. And it's like what you said earlier, um, isn't it? About it has to have real utility. And I think like anything else, it has to be part of a brand's wider marketing mix and relevant. It's like when TikTok first came along, brands would be viewing it as this separate thing entirely, where it's like, okay, how do we do a TikTok? And it's like, well, you just be yourself on TikTok, um, but learn the native language. And I think it, you know, that'll become clear over time, hopefully with a lot more better examples. Uh, but one part that I'm really interested about and one I wanted to ask uh, you a bit more about is the secondary market because you explained it a little bit um, the first time we spoke and this idea that your NFT can actually travel a lot further once you've put it out into the world um, and it can grow into something else with your customers' audience trading amongst themselves and um, that can actually bring back, not to make it all about revenue, of course, but that could actually earn you royalties. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this goes back to how you want to structure the smart contract. So if you wanted to, you could structure the smart contract to make sure that every single time there's a resale, you might get a 10% kickback or a 15% kickback. So it starts to give you smaller resale revenues in perpetuity. The key thing for that, though, is what value are you adding to the community and the NFTs to encourage them to even trade in the first place? You know, the vast majority, for example, let, let go, let's go back to the McRib. You know, if you've got a McRib or you've got, you know, a Domino's Pizza mascot NFT or something like that, and they're not necessarily building any incentivization or any reason to build a community around it, arguably what's probably going to happen is that NFT is not going to be resellable because who the fuck's going to want to buy that? So, you know, I think a lot of the time when people are thinking about NFTs, they're thinking about doing a massive drum roll and then a big drop and making a chunk of cash and that's it. But actually, you know, the real value of these and the value of kind of tokenization as well is about creating these economies and these communities and these feedback loops and this kind of constant utility and value around, you know, these different pieces. And if you do that, you're going to have a much, much healthier secondary market, which is then going to give you the perpetuity kickback afterwards. But the vast majority and pretty much every single brand is not thinking that way. They don't understand it. They think it's very kind of campaign mentality. We chuck it out there and then we move on to the next thing. You know, there's no nurturing. There's no thinking about actually what is the long term implication of this and what are we trying to build towards? You know, a great example of that in, in motion is NBA Top Shot. So obviously NBA Top Shot is, you know, digital collectibles, kind of like, you know, rookie cards, but on steroids because they're sort of moments that you can collect. And what they were realizing is there was a massive, massive bump initially when people first kind of discovered that they could do this and it was hugely popular. And then what happened is the trading started to decrease. So the secondary market kickback just wasn't there because people had no incentive to trade really. And that's a massive loss for the NBA because obviously they'd built in royalties and they want that secondary market to be healthy. And so what they started thinking about is actually, can we gamify this? And so actually they've created almost like a kind of fantasy NBA game where your top shots that you own have different kind of scores and metrics based on the player that they are and the game that they, you know, whatever they were doing in that particular moment. And it means you can almost kind of bet against each other and sort of play rounds against each other. And that then gives you new incentive to trade, you know, your NFTs and your moments that you own because they then have value in this game that is ongoing, which then encourages a healthier secondary market. So, you know, there's lots of kind of that, that type of stuff as well. You know, RAC is a music artist. He's an EDM DJ and he's massively into NFTs. And the big thing for him is that if you own an RAC NFT of any kind, so whether it's, you know, a piece of a royalty or an album or a song or something like that, if you go to one of his gigs, he will airdrop you stuff that nobody else can have because you've got the NFT. So then other people want to try and get hold of that NFT because otherwise they don't get the airdrops. And so it's basically rewarding OG fans and, you know, kind of giving them um, you know, kickback as well. So all of that idea of long term value, community building, ongoing utility, ongoing exclusivity and access. Brands just they do not think in that way because it's campaign led. It's one and done. It's five weeks in market and then we're back to annual planning all over again. Yeah. And this is a fundamentally different way of thinking and, and working. Yeah, so the example you shared, Cal, about the was it season ticket holders for clubs or like having your ticket and it grows in value and it almost acts yeah. as like memorabilia you can own. I think it's, yeah, from that point of view, you can tell kind of going on the sports route, it's just been thinking so much about them. But at the minute, so my, my season ticket is essentially just like a, you know, like a card in your Apple wallet. They're kind of looking at um, use cases for this. And if that were in NFT, then one... Obviously, if if we won the season, if we won the title this season, naturally that would then become more valuable. If it, if it, I don't know if I could sell that or whatever, I wouldn't dream of. But you know what I mean. 
while you were talking about the rib, I kind of got a sense there was a slight bee in your bonnet about that one. So yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I know there's been a bit of uproar in the community about not only the, the actual NFT, but also how that was rolled out. You know, it was like a, a retweet to win mechanic, wasn't it? It wasn't really how it's meant to work. So I think it would be quite good fun to get, without brand bashing, of course, but get an example of a poor branded NFT and then probably your favorite one as well, if we come. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be the McRib. It's going to be any brand that's kind of jumped on the bandwagon and not really thought it through. I mean, there's there's loads of them um, that have tried to get into this particular space, just not really added any value. I can't even think of them, but there, there's so many of them. There's like obviously Charmin toilet paper, but theirs was kind of tongue in cheek. I think Domino's did their mascots, which I originally thought might be quite cool because I thought they were going to add extra utility and they didn't. And so that's a bit disappointing. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, anything that's almost just like a straight collectible of a thing that has no value, no secondary market, no community building. I mean, that's just bad. Could McDonald's, so off the McRib, could McDonald's have built a community off that in like for McRib lovers and only brought the McRib back for them or gave them discounts on McRibs or, you know, year long McRib subscriptions? Is that an example of how they maybe could have improved it? I don't know if I would have built an entire community around one sandwich. Um, but you know, <laughs> could be, could be, yeah. Turn, it? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's super, super niche. Um, but you know, there, there is actually kind of fun stuff that you could have done, you know, in a community as well. So say, say for example, if you got the McRib NFT, maybe that invites you into, um, a community of product feedback loops where actually you kind of feedback on limited edition sources and all this kind of stuff. So there's an example of this which McDonald's kind of did, but actually kind of did quite badly many, many years ago, which was Rick and Morty with the Szechuan sauce. Um, so Rick and Morty, oh. if you're familiar with Rick and Morty, uh, super popular, adult animation, I love it. Um, there was a particular episode when Rick um, decides that he wants Szechuan sauce, which was a sauce that was a limited edition that McDonald's brought out to promote the Mulan movie, like well over a decade ago. And it was in market for like three weeks, you know, if that mm -hmm. But because Rick and Morty brought it back, it turned itself into a meme. And then the Rick and Morty fan community, which is pretty rabid and pretty big, started basically going into McDonald's and calling up McDonald's going, do you have Szechuan sauce? Um, because they almost wanted to kind of prove their fandom by sort of buying into Szechuan sauce so they could then, you know, take photos on social media or feel like they were part of the kind of Rick and Morty yeah. narrative. Um, and the McDonald's was just like, right, this is clearly a popular thing. We're going to bring back Szechuan sauce. So they did. Uh, but they only brought it back in very, very limited quantities and in very kind of limited stores as well. So then Rick and Morty fans were just like, well, this is shit because I've got to travel, you know, three states over to get mm. this Szechuan sauce. And then when I get there, it's not there. So it was basically a bit of a negative experience. But the fact that they could have capitalized on it and kind of released Szechuan sauce all over the US for, you know, three months, something like that, that would have been massive. So if you take that idea and then you kind of pull it into this idea of a kind of taste community that can feed back on, you know, flavor profiles and sort of meme stuff that they see that they want to get introduced, you know, maybe McDonald's actually builds this community that they can tap into, which are super sort of social media always on and can say, you know, we want this source. We saw this in this show. You know, can we do this kind of thing? And actually they start to sort of memify, you know, their menu or maybe there's a secret menu that those people can tap into because of their contributions that nobody else can get. You know, so there's a way of kind of building that sort of uh, insider community that you can reward, you know, with, with, it doesn't need to be sort of equity or anything like that, but it could be, you know, you've now got an NFT that if you scan it in a McDonald's store, it opens up a secret menu that no one else can get access to because you're yeah. part of the McDonald's taste community or, you know, that kind of stuff yeah, as well. Nice. But it could be, it could be so much fun and it could just be a little bit different. Um, and I think that was a missed opportunity. It just has to go beyond being just a virtual version of an existing product, right? 100%. And there's there's so many different ways to build community. You know, there's a clothing brand. Um, I've completely forgotten the name of it. And actually, I mentioned them again on a Twitter spaces uh, last week. And I also forgot the name of them then. But they're super interesting because they've opened up an anime community on Discord called Anime and Beyond. I think they're called Hot Topic or something like that. I can't remember. But what I thought was interesting is that, you know, they're a clothing brand and they've got nothing to do with anime. But what they've looked at is they've looked at what are our communities adjacent interests and what could we start to tap into as a passion community. So they started this anime community and they chat about new anime content that's coming out. You know, they've got really passionate fans in there. And I think what's going to be really interesting is I think they're going to start actually creating anime licensed clothing lines, for example, or I can kind of see that going in an interesting direction or anime virtual avatar clothing or something along those lines. But again, it's really interesting to kind of pick a passion community and then start building in that direction. I think every brand is capable of that. 
But the problem is we've seen community building as this kind of fluffy, nice to have. And we give the keys to a brand new university graduate who we're paying peanuts. And we go, can you just answer their shit comments and send them towards customer service, please? And what they're not understanding is the customer service aspect of social media is fundamentally different from the nurturing of you know these communities who could be hugely beneficial to the brand in from creative input, product feedback loops, advocacy, you know, evangelism, tapping into other communities because maybe there are creators in there as well. And we need to start pulling those two things apart and realize that this is almost like a secret weapon for so many brands and they're just not thinking about it. Yeah, so staying on the topic of that wearable fashion and even the digital food products that we touched on with McDonald's earlier, seen a lot of um, you know skins and filters, et cetera, floating around my feed you know, of, of wearable fashion. And personally, I can't help but feel a little bit underwhelmed, um, whether that's just where we're at the market or not, because obviously it's so early. But what's the actual tangible value of virtual goods to the, to the average consumer right now? I think they're pretty minimal um, at the moment. Although the one thing that I would say is we've got a gigantic generation, cross-generation, because actually the average age of a gamer these days is 35. But we've got a gigantic generation of gamers who are growing up and already buying virtual fashion goods. You know, those are skins in games. So, you know, if you're in Fortnite or if you're in Roblox or Call of Duty or, um, I don't know, Battlefield or Apex Legends or whatever it is, you are already exchanging real money for virtual fashion by buying skins. So, you know, in Apex Legends, you buy gun charms and gun skins. You know, in Fortnite, you can buy, you know, dance moves. You can buy, you know, different outfits. You can be a celebrity. You can be The Rock. You can be LeBron. You know, you can be Rick from Rick and Morty if you want to. Um, You know, in Call of Duty, you know, you're buying different kind of skins and aspects there and sort of weapons, et cetera. And I think, you know, we are already primed to exchanging real money for virtual money for virtual goods, but we don't own them. You know, going back to what I said previously, you cannot take a banana avatar outfit outside of Fortnite and use it somewhere else. You can't take a gun charm from Apex League of Legends and use it in Call of Duty. You know, so actually that interoperability is not there. So when it comes to kind of virtual fashion and and the sort of value of virtual fashion, the minute we start to open up the ability for some of those skins and some of those different bits to travel, even if they travel into your social profile. So if I buy, you know, a virtual outfit in Fortnite, for example, but that also gives me the ability to wear it as a lens and take a photo of real me wearing a digital outfit in Instagram and Snapchat, and I can use it on those filters, then that starts to increase the value for me. So I think a lot of people are kind of going, I would never want to own digital fashion. And my pushback is you probably already do. You just don't see it like that because it's a game skin. This is the the sort of one area I have the most skepticism around, I think. And it mostly comes down to cost mm. and like this barrier to entry. I think I can see the value there when you explain it like that. But I don't think... I would ever recommend a brand or I think I would judge a brand a bit if they were charging the same amount of money for their virtual goods as they were for their physical goods because oh, but they're not. being able to buy that I think comes from a massive place of privilege. I don't think anyone's doing that from what I understand. So, you know, if you look at Gucci, for example, Gucci's AR sneakers were twelve ninety nine. So that's completely different, you know, from a normal pair of sneakers, you know, the Balenciaga limited edition hoodie in Fortnite. I can't even remember how much that was, but I think it was like, you know, below $20 if that. And so, you know, what you're doing is you're also kind of democratizing access to the brand name. And from a brand perspective, a lot of them are loving that because again, as you said, you know, that price barrier is there IRL and people can't actually buy it. If you're 15, you probably can't go and buy a Balenciaga hoodie in real life, but you can wear one in Fortnite. And you can still have that kind of that piece as well. Do you think we'll get to the point where 15 year olds are asking their parents for Christmas, can I have a, a virtual pair of trainers? They already are. Yeah. I mean, have yeah. you have you have you've got any have you got any access to kids who are gamers at the moment? If you have, uh, go and speak to them or go and speak to their parents. And it is a weekly or if not, you know, multiple times a week occurrence. Can I have some more V-Bucks so that I can buy this new Fortnite skin? Can I have some more Roblox so I can buy this kind of, you know, Gucci hat so I can wear it on my avatar? It is common. So I think that's the other thing as well. You know, if you're not a gamer or if you're not exposed to teenagers who are gamers, you are stuck in that bubble of, I just don't think this happens. You know, microtransactions within games are a multi-billion dollar economy. Of course it happens. Mm. It's everywhere, you know, and that's where NFTs are going to start opening up. And I really think we need to open our minds to that because, you know, when we're saying, I don't think that's going to be a thing or I don't think people are going to pay for this, they already are. 
Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? You can't stop the the innovation train, as we call it. But there is one more um, side to this that I think is worth just briefly exploring. And that is um, the environmental impact of crypto that we're reading about in the news um, mm-hmm. all the time. And I guess then its relationship to certain brands that have perhaps pledged to be, you know, a lot more eco-conscious over the next five years or reduce their carbon footprint or those, you know, whose sort of green attitude is really embedded in their brand values like Patagonia, would we sort of recommend exploring NFTs and crypto-based assets for those kind of brands? Absolutely. Uh, Reason being, a lot of people, again, don't understand the intricacies of the climate piece with NFTs. They just haven't done the research. Mm. And it's a very very familiar and comfortable criticism to be like, oh, it's bad for the environment. We're not going to do it. In actual fact, it's not. Um, that it really depends on what kind of blockchain you're using. So the the vast majority of the original blockchains or all of the original blockchains were based on POW, which is proof of work systems. What that means is that in order to kind of prove a transaction um, on the blockchain, you have to have a huge amount of computing power because your computer has to solve really complex equations in order to prove that you are, you know, the real you and you can then kind of obviously have your transaction uh, and your block in the chain. And that is very, very heavy from an energy consumption perspective, because it's a massive amount of kind of electricity and computing power that you need to do that. And obviously, as the blockchains are becoming much more popular, you're going to need increasing amounts of computing power to be able to actually then have these blocks. So that is a negative for Bitcoin, and it's a negative for the Ethereum blockchain as it currently is. However, there are now a massive influx of brand new blockchains, which are not based on proof of work and are based on different systems. So you've got POS, which is proof of stake, which basically means that you stake like tokens or NFTs that you own of that blockchain to prove that you are who you are in order to then actually get your block in the chain. There are other ones called proof of history, which I can't explain in a sentence because it's very, very complex and there are entire white papers on that. But again, not proof of work. Um, and then you've also got, you know, those proof of stakes and those proof of histories, which are 99.9% less energy abusive, basically. So they really don't emit that huge amount of energy. They are also looking into gigantic uh, portions of carbon offsetting as well. So for example, there is a blockchain called Hedara and Hedara is what they call carbon negative. So it's proof of stake, first off, which is 99.9% less energy than proof of work, which is minimal. And they're actually buying gigantic blocks of carbon offsets um, in order to actually always have a negative impact on carbon as well. So actually they give back way more than they actually use. So again, I think that familiar criticism of it's all evil, it's all bad for the environment is just not accurate. No, I think it's really helpful to hear that because it is a concern we hear raised a lot by brands. Um, And again, comes back to this lack of understanding. So it's good to get things like that broken down and um, you know, I was reading something the other day, especially when you compare it to like the banking industry. It's like who's actually having more of an impact, but or gold, yeah, or gold, fast fashion, food, any industry. Yeah. You know, the minute you start comparing yeah. proof mm. of stake rather than proof of work, actually, you know, virtual goods are way better because you know we don't have to package them, we don't have to dig for them, we don't have to transport them. You know, there's there's so much you know possibility on that. You know, and if brands are scared of it go and find a proof of stake um, network that is doing carbon offsets and actually, you know, your impact will be negative. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. I've never really actually thought about it like that. So really interesting viewpoint and one I think a lot of brands can get on board with. So to wrap this up, we've got a lot of brands who listen to Social Minds and I'd like to get your thoughts on the easiest way for them to get started in NFTs. You know, like we said, they might not be for everyone, but do you recommend, if if they want to go down this uh, route, do you recommend that they get started right now do they need to wait i know it might depend on what industry they're in but then also do they need to be set up on a certain platform do they need to uh, create crypto accounts own crypto talk us through that journey just to finish up if you can please i think this is a marathon it's not a sprint you know web3 is going to be a fundamental shift in the structure of the internet and we are so unbelievably early right now So I think that you've got more than enough time. And as I said previously, that formula that I wrote for fandom, which was the community autonomy equity, think about that as a linear trajectory. So start with the community piece. And I think there's a couple of different things that you can do around there. So for you as an individual within a brand, you need to learn about what Web3 communities are all about and what's happening in this space. So, you know, join a couple of discords, set yourself up a MetaMask wallet and or a Rainbow wallet, um, buy your first NFT, just buy something cheap that you kind of like the look of. 
and then see if that's attached to a community. Jump into the Discord and just kind of participate because you cannot learn this stuff unless you're in it. It's kind of impossible to wrap your head around mm. it unless you actually understand the ins and outs of it. And then once you start learning, what you're going to see very, very quickly is it's super messy. There's no real structure to it. The usability shit. And, you know, we need to wait for the plumbing to be fixed before we can really start to get this from it to a mainstream perspective. You know, the way that, that I kind analogy. of, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that I kind of describe it is it's like the iPhone and the App Store. So when the iPhone first came out, it's a very pretty looking phone. Um, and we were just like, but what am I going to do with it? And it's really expensive and it just doesn't really do anything apart from letting me send SMSs and make phone calls. The real value for the iPhone came when the third party app store came into play because then loads and loads of third parties were building different types of entertainment, utility, access, all of this kind of stuff. And suddenly your phone became everything to you because the app store was built. That is where we're at when it comes to Web3 and blockchain. So the blockchains are almost like the iOS system and they are clunky and you know they're very exciting, but right now the usability just isn't there. What we're now waiting for is the L2s. So blockchains as they are, L1s, so layer ones, we're waiting for L2s, so layer twos, and that's gonna be all of the different apps, they call them dApps, decentralized applications, to be built. And right now, all of the big blockchains, so Avalanche, Polygon, Solana, Ethereum, they're all starting gigantic creator funds. So 100 million here, 100 million there to encourage developers to create these apps because the blockchain really comes alive when you can build all of these different applications on top of it that suddenly make it useful and exciting and entertaining and all of that utility is kind of built in because you shouldn't need to know the ins and outs of how a blockchain works to be able to enjoy it. But that's the stage we're in right now. But you know, we're right now, we're on Riverside. I don't really know a huge amount about voice over IP technology. I don't know if you guys do, but we're still using this because it's an application built on the infrastructure and the plumbing of, of VoIP. And you know, that's where we need to get to with blockchain as well. So as I said, it's, it's a marathon, but you can still participate, you can play around. And I think you need to do your homework on your own community and your own customers as well. So going back to the example I gave about gaming, look at your brand and be like, okay, who are our customers? How are they interacting with us currently? Are they using our product and service in a way that's un unexpected? What kind of adjacent interests and categories and passion areas are they into? And really start to understand, you know, the bones of who your customer base is. Not kind of demographic shitty insights or, you know, personas like, you know, Dave has three children. Uh, he goes to work at 7.30 a.m. every morning. I mean, that's just shit. You don't want to do that. You want cultural explanation. And we want to actually look into, you know, are they into streetwear? Are they into stamp collecting? Are they into anime? Are they into football? You know, whatever it is, and then try and get deeper. Then start thinking about if you were to introduce, you know, community and co-creation, how might you start to do that? And then and only then do you start thinking about the, the equity layer. So that trajectory is there and it's ripe for exploration, but don't feel like you have to rush into doing NFTs just so you can do a PR project because that's not what this is about. Yeah, I think it's a really important point uh, to make there that it is a marathon and not a sprint. When we're so used to seeing brands, you know, get so into this idea of first mover advantage and they have to be first, it's actually nice to sit back and realize we're maybe at more of a point of education than immediate action. So, I mean, for anyone listening, please uh, take that to heart. And I hope this conversation has been useful for you. So we could talk about this all day and we probably would if left unchecked, but I think we'll have to wrap things up there. And thank you once again very much for speaking to us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Right then. Bananas with machine guns. <laughs> Rick and Morty granting you access to a McDonald's tasting consensus group. My head is fried, but I'm absolutely loving it. Eve, thoughts? Mine's buzzing as well. Yeah. I think one of those... Uh, it's one of those times where I'm actually so glad that she said what she said about, you know, not having to rush into things if you're a brand and not worrying about being first. Because as we've learned today, there's actually so much more to it than I think we first realized. Mm. And, you know, the difference between being a McDonald's with your McRib, yes, I have brought it up again, <laughs> and actually stopping to think and do something really creative. You know, when Zoe was chucking out examples there about the million things that you can do with it in terms of, you know, the collaborative NFT where uh, you actually leverage community and it can become something else entirely she's very right when she said it really is just your imagination is the limit yeah definitely the long-term application for me is is things i've kept hearing this and zoe only reinforced that it's a long-term play it's not a short-term play here 
feel like we're bashing McDonald's quite a lot here for the bit. I know. Brief, I'm sorry if you're listening, but it was a crap <laughs> NFT. And hey, if you want some advice on how to do a better one, maybe maybe we have some uh, ideas don't, now. Don't hold back, Eve. Anyway, um, <laughs> build those communities. Yeah, it's not short-term play. Understand your audience. Understand them and what they'd want from your brand first. Mm. You know, not everyone would like a McRib JPEG, but I guess it did do the job for McDonald's because we're talking about it. So let's leave them there. Let's Ooh. say it was. Let's <laughs> give them some credit. We're slagging for that. it off. I think yeah. I mean, she put it um, in a really useful way, which was just viewing it as part of your wider marketing mix. And this idea again, you know, where they think, okay, we'll do an NFT, but they think of it as this completely separate entity to everything they're already doing. Mm. Um, like I said, when TikTok first came about, it was, okay, well, how do we do TikTok? How do we, you know, jump on this thing and, you know, don't think about it in terms of what you're already doing. Your NFT should have real utility for sure and actually, you know, make sense in terms of the comms you're already putting out there and um, the things you're already offering your audience. It's just in a different format. Um, something that you think would be worthwhile for people to own, you know, share, trade amongst themselves, what will increase in value, um, things like that. But you'll probably have lots of stuff you're already doing. You can actually convert into an NFT, but don't just default to, you know, here's my product as a digital asset. Yeah, the, I mean, you can convert, but then as so, there's so many more use cases for yeah. things, you know, the clubs. And create. The, it is, yeah, uh, limitless possibilities here. I think my top tip for brands listening to this um when Zoe said, get in the discords and understand them, that is a huge, huge part of this. So when I was trying to kind of get up to speed on NFTs, the first thing I did was actually buy one, then get into a discord. And she's right. They're a mess. They're just, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of thoughts going around, but you cannot do this properly without actually experiencing them for yourself. So if you're a social media manager or a content manager or innovation, get yourself in the space. Get on board with NFTs. It doesn't have to be expensive. could be the cheapest one, but get on board with something that's got a community underneath it. Get in the Discord and have a look how people are interacting, what they want, what that roadmap could look like in the long term. And then that's something you can then take away. And as Zoe said, you know, you don't have to rush into this. It's something you can take away and join together your learnings and then your brand knowledge. And then you can create something that actually will be, one, valuable for your audience, but two, just makes sense. I think one point as well that we didn't touch on, um, but that stood out to me is, of course, the job ads we've been seeing over the last couple of months, things like Metaverse Creative, Metaverse Writers, um, and whether that's sort of the right approach or not when you're looking to get into the space. Um, and just picking up on something Zoe said, when she said you need advice from people who understand this new economy, as well as people who understand branding and creative. So it really is this sort of uh, mix of specialisms. But of course, uh, you're going to have to understand that background about its economic implications and the blockchain and things like that, as well as your brand's place in it. And of course, how you can start brand building in that new space then as well. So just something to think about, I guess, if you are looking at you know hiring uh, strategists or consultants for this mm. kind of thing and make sure you're really going after people with the right skills and you know not people who call themselves gurus and ninjas and experts when actually they could be selling you whatever the fuck they want so yeah just take it canny there 